I'm an ED whose newly appointed board chair asked me to CC him on every email I send out. Help! <laughs> I think we have to go with our our stock answer yes. with this one, which is run for the hills. Yes, I, I can't help but read these questions and, and see a, someone running for the hills. <laughs> Literally, that's exactly what I was we thinking. We need to just like the like pay pay to have um, a, an audio clip run for the hills. Oh my gosh, we're gonna um, do that. We have to do that. <laughs> like, okay, I'll see how much it costs. Um, so here's yeah, I would I would ask um, if if it's possible, like reach out to the new boards here and say, I'm glad that you want to be involved, but I don't feel comfortable CCing you on every email I send because that's not your job to read every email I send. Like, and maybe it's an opportunity to counsel the incoming board chair about what the role of a board chair is. The role of a board chair is not to babysit you. The role of this, which yes. is exactly what it sounds like this person's doing, right? Yeah. The board chair's role is not to make sure you're doing your job right. It's to supervise you the way a supervisor would in any other supervisory situation. <laughs> and not even not even the most horrible, <laughs> like for-profit telemarketing nightmare firm you could imagine. Do you have to CC your supervisor on every email you send? That that would be crazy. Um, if if that's uncomfortable, if you don't want to do that, maybe bring in the the outgoing board chair, and maybe the three of you can sit together and sit down and talk about here's here's how I prefer to be managed. You know, I don't want to disrespect you, and I, I I'm glad you want to be engaged. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I I would echo everything you said. I guess I would also say there's you know if you if there's any other opportunities out there articles, education, webinars, whatever that you think you could do. I I honestly think more people need to do that with incoming board chairs. And here's what I think. I mean, this isn't going to solve your your problem immediately, but it might help because it's still a new situation. I mean, if you can say, "Hey, you know what I would rather do? Can we like sit down, go to this webinar together, whatever, this training together, and like then talk about what we think will work for both of us and I can share with you his, you know, kind of we can talk a little bit more about your role, my role, and how we can make sure we're in the loop. And perhaps, you know, suggest something like a weekly a weekly phone call for 30 minutes or something or whatever. Like, because I know a lot of board chairs and executive directors do that where they touch base regularly, right? Whether it's once a week, once a month, whatever, like they set their cadence and then they like share with each other what's going on and like use each other's support. So I think you get to kind of define it a little bit because it's new. But I also think, this is a really good lesson for anyone listening to this. Get your board incoming board chair training before you ever get into the situation. And I think that looks a couple of ways. If your outgoing board chair is a rock star, have that person meet one-on-one with their peer and say, hey, I just, you know, I know you're going into this role. Do you have questions? Let me tell you a little bit about what's worked really well for me. Right. Like, so I think that personal experience makes a whole difference. And I also think getting someone the training they go into a board chair role they they have their own definition of what that means and they don't have a clue right so also give a little you know maybe give a little bit of grace because maybe this person really means well but just is a little uh, overly excited right <laughs> right yeah, now sounds overly excited Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. The Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits presents Nonprofit Everything, the podcast about everything nonprofit.
with your host, Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. I'm Andy Shurek. I'm here with my fantastic, really smart host, Stacy Wedding. We always say that to each other just to make ourselves feel better. We just better. need to feel better. <laughs> we, just, we, do, we don't really believe it. We just really have to do that we so do. that we, we can get through these. <laughs> so this is a production of the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits. They support the podcast. And the way it works is you send us questions. You can email them to us. You can put them on the Nonprofit Everything webpage, Facebook, Twitter, texting us works, finding any way to get that to us. We will answer those questions and we do our best to answer them. Or if we don't really feel like it, we'll get a guest expert and then you listen to it and then you complain about it and tell us how we did it all wrong, which we (laughs) like that too. So if you have any feedback on the podcast, please send it over to us. A special thanks to Envy Energy for letting us use their nice, quiet recording space so we actually sound good and don't sound like we're in caves. And uh, with that, we'll get to it. Stacey, this is a long question, so you have to pay attention. Oh. We could go back and review parts of it if okay, we need that's, to. It's that's really good. long. But it's I a, feel sort of like I'm in a classroom right now yeah. and your teacher Andy telling <laughs> I me. I have to, pay to read attention. the whole thing. There's so much detail in this. There's so much important detail that helps with this question. If I don't read the whole thing, it won't be we won't be answering it. Okay. We want to answer it. Okay. So here we go. I'm a young executive director of a small nonprofit, and we run a forty three hundred square foot gallery and collaborative studio space in an underserved community. We were recently approached by another nonprofit arts organization to utilize our space four times a week for performing arts classes. When asked about their anticipated revenue for these classes, they would charge $450 per student per 10 week long semesters with over 20 students per class. Now here's where it's get juicy. One of their board members is also a member of our board who is being aggressively supportive of this to the point of excluding me in on any communication from the other nonprofit until recently when the board president requested it due to my complaint about transparency. They seem like they'd like to help with capital improvements rather than pay rent. They also would like this agreement to be in the form of an MOU instead of a renter's contract. The board nearly unanimously has agreed to this with the thought of generating income for our nonprofit. All of this makes me uncomfortable for multiple reasons. First, the median income for our demographic is less than $40,000 a year. This is the kind of demographic that will only give to one arts organization during citywide giving events. I'm also afraid our identity will be compromised when a nonprofit larger than us is utilizing the space with more programming than we have. Both parties would be acting autonomously of each other, so I feel more comfortable with a renter's agreement instead of the MOU. I haven't had any experience with drafting an MOU, but could this be in addition to a renter's contract agreement? Yeah. That was long and there's a lot lot of layers. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to first start with I really think. There needs to, you need to have your board president, who sounds like they're helping support you, create a committee without the board member who has the the interest in both the nonprofits, right? Yeah, the massive conflict of interest. Okay, <laughs> so let's create a a committee because because there's some there's some things to work through on this, right? So here's why I think a committee of the board makes sense, and you need to be a part of this process too. So not just the board, right? But First of all, you you mentioned at the beginning that you were set up as a collaborative space. So as a collaborative space, what does that mean? What does success look like? Because if, you know, it, is your board just jumping at this opportunity? You said they were looking at the money and income potential. Was that the goal of the intended space? And maybe the goals change. But like, I think you really need to think about what does collaborative mean? Like, 
Does that mean that we give a break to nonprofits? Does that mean that we just are offering up this beautiful space we have? Like, I think there needs to be a little discussion and guidelines because otherwise you're going to get opportunities like this. You could get a for-profit that comes and says, can we use part of your space? Like, how are you handling those these, you know, situations? I think there needs to be some sort of general guidelines about what is the ideal you know, tenant of this space, you know, what does that look like? So I feel like a committee could kind of work through some of that piece. And also, again, keep neutrality, because what it sounds like is this one board member is bulldozing, maybe has a better relationship or closer, whatever it is with the other nonprofit, but is bulldozing. And and I see so many boards do this, right? They, they get one strong board member or one board member who's really vocal and pushing something. And because they don't want to create conflict or whatever the story is, they don't pursue it. So like you need a neutral committee who can think about this from a what's in your best interest as an organization perspective, right? Instead of any of this other bias. And I think, and you also don't want to be the one having to make that sole decision. I think you need, I think board members could be great thought partners with you on some of this stuff. So that's sort of my my first reaction. And 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 you know, and then in that could be exploring is it an MOU? Is it a renter's agreement? Is it some combo of both? I tend to, um, I think I was a lawyer in another life. So I tend to go the path of a rent. I mean, to me, this like a renter's agreement just seems like good business sense for something like this. But again, I guess I want to know more about what is the actual outcome look like. And absolutely don't let this other organization dictate, oh, we are more willing to help you with capital improvements versus paying rent. Like that has to be your organization's decision. You're the one opening up your space. So I wouldn't, I mean, you can take that into consideration if that's something you want to look at, but all of those things come to play for me when I hear this question. Yeah. And I'm I'm going to start with just the easiest piece of this. Like, so there's a lot of hard stuff in there. I'm going to start with the easy stuff. So there's no such thing as an MOU. Like I've seen nonprofits use this term. They throw it around MOU for those of you that are not familiar with this imaginary thing is called a memorandum (laughs) of understanding. And it's basically a contract. So it's, it's a, it's a thing that's written down where several people agree to it. And then two people sign at the bottom or two organizations sign at the bottom. That's a contract. That's what the whole point of it is that here, we're going to put some words down and we're all going to make sure that we understand, we agree on what this says. And this is just a document that proves that we've read it and we agree to it and it's got terms in it that we all understand and it's got a length of time. That's the, they're the exact same thing. So, so if, so one of the simple ways out, if you want to get out of this and make everybody kind of happy is you can put the words memorandum of understanding at the top of it, as long as it contains all of the information that you would normally put in, in a renting renters contract about you owe us this much money, this, each month it's due on this date. If you don't pay us within 30 days, we get to kick you out. Like all the stuff that would normally be in a rental contract, you can put in this imaginary document called the memorandum of understanding. Um, and they're, so they're identical things. So, so I don't know that I would necessarily stress about that. I feel like in nonprofits, I hear this a lot is they want to do an MOU because they feel like it's like a softer. Yeah. That's exactly what I was thinking. It just feels like it's not as like contracts sound hard. We might need to get an attorney involved and, and they feel adversarial. We're, and this is, I, I see, I see this a lot. They feel adversarial. And so you don't want to enter into an, a contract with somebody. And a lot of that is because of attorneys that just come at it with that attitude where I'm going to try to get 99.9% for my client and you can have a 10th of a percent on your side. And so we already come into the relationship is like, I'm going to try, I'm going to come and try to get you. And 
make you sign this thing that you don't totally agree with. And it's like any, you know, any service, they send you a contract and it's got like this massive indemnification section that if you really believed it and read it basically means that if they get sued for anything in the whole universe, you're responsible for it, right? All this nonsense, gobbledygook garbage that gets dumped into contracts. Can you tell them? Serious about this? Yeah, you like, didn't like my comment about saying I was a lawyer in a prior life. <laughs> and and I went right down the path you're talking about. Let's be honest. Because I, too, in my mind, MOU feels like this softer, yeah. loosey-goosey thing. And I so I agree completely with what you're saying. If it's signed by both parties and people with authority at both organizations and has the right terms, who the hell cares what you... Yeah. Yeah. So so here's, the, here's what I'm trying to get at is like... The, a contract should not be an adversarial thing. It shouldn't be like, I'm going to give you something that if I get you to sign it, like I got you, right? I've got your soul or whatever. <laughs> it should be, this is, these are all of the things that we're agreeing on. It's think about it as like from a consensus, you know, if it's really going to use some nonprofit language, right? Think of it from a consensus building perspective. Of, this is us together coming up with a list of things that we all agree to. And once we've all agreed to all of these things, and there may be some give and take, oh, I don't, I think that's too much, or oh, that's not enough, but what about insurance? Like you're thinking of all of these things beforehand so that everybody agrees, you sign it at the bottom, and then that's the rules. You're just coming up with the rules and you're putting them in a document form where everybody's signed it at the bottom and you're all agreeing to the rules. Like playing, playing a baseball game or some sort of sporting event where there's a list of rules that everybody agrees to, to abide by. And so if you think about it that way, then then it's less terrifying and less angry and less adversarial about trying to get them and us to agree to stuff. Yeah. So may, my perspective to come at this from that other angle, like using that as the direction in, is to sit down with your other organization like as maybe not like full board to full board, get the attorneys involved at once. Is maybe there's a way to do it like executive director to executive director and sit down and say, here are my concerns. This is what, you know, we're happy, you know, we've got this space and we're not using it completely and you guys need more space. And here's the stuff I'm worried about is that are there ways that maybe we can work these things out together and come up with an agreement that you think is a fair deal and I think is a fair deal too. And then once you've come to this sort of broad brush agreement, then by all means, bring the attorneys in and have them battle it out over the indemnification clause and the whole front page that says, whereas 14 times that everyone hates. Like get them to do that part after you've agreed on all of the individual salient points. So that might, that might ease your mind a little bit about like, I don't want to get, I don't want to get screwed in this. And I feel like everybody's coming at me and I don't think this is a good deal for my nonprofit. So that might help. Do you think though, so to the point of, I almost feel like the step before what you just said, like I think the two EDs meeting with each other makes perfect sense, but I still feel like there needs to be some small task force ad hoc committee that thinks through like what is the what was the intention you know behind this because to me a collaborative space really can mean a lot of things to a lot of people right and so like i think the organization before it moves forward like this is its first opportunity it needs to get clear on what does collaborative mean does it truly mean that we're going to sort of be like the bright star in the community that's going to just donate this space for people free of charge does it mean we're going to give a reduced rate does it just mean that we want people that are similar organizations that complement us like to me there's some really big like 
big picture intent questions with the space that need to be thought through. And the organization has to be on the same page before they even go negotiate or have that conversation. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, the, the, the question of what's your, what's your mission, right? And is this, yeah. comp- is this agreement compatible with your mission? You're right. That's a, that's a larger committee question and not, maybe not an ED to ED question. So yeah, I would totally agree there. I think the committee is a good idea. I think there sounds like, you know, it's, it's, it is it is a very small nonprofit that we're talking about. So, so I I think there's probably subtext that's in here about your current board may be freaked out about cash. Yep. And and this to them looks like well, we'll just do this and right. we'll get some cash. So so maybe maybe that's okay as long as you can figure out a way to like get that you know explain to the board that if they're just going to use the space and help them fix it up that doesn't help you with the cash problem so maybe if there's a if there are if there is a subtext and there's more to this on the financial side that was written in in the question maybe dig into that a little bit more because it sounds like your board is grasping at straws like oh they're going to come rescue us with yes. this idea and it from the way you write it i don't it doesn't sound like that to me no and and the other thing is, I, there is definitely a sense when when you look at some of the wording in this about worried about this other nonprofit being larger, and you know, will it sort of help you know diminish your identity or make you less? I, I would encourage you to really think about this. I understand that fear, but that's kind of coming from a place of scarcity and like there's not enough out there. I think in some ways you could turn that on its head and I challenge you to think about it the opposite way and say, wow, what might this do having partnering with or having a larger organization that draws attention to our space and our work that we do since we own this space, we can actually even build in systems that show it is our space, it actually might do just the opposite of what you're scared of. Like it could be you have more attention from some of the program participants or others involved with this other organization. It could involve, you know, people starting to say, who is this organization? Like curious about you. So so I guess I would worry less about that piece because I actually think it could benefit you um, it, more. Yeah. It's a, and it's the kind of thing to think about in the contract too. Like maybe you want them to, when they're talking about where it's located, that it's mentioning, it's not just their annex, right. it's your institution that yes. they're, that's where they're going to go to have these classes. So yeah, ride their coattails. Yeah. a nonprofit that provides mentorship to young people from underserved communities. We've decided to expand our program to include a scholarship component to help offset the expenses for those who pursue post-secondary education. As we build out the committee, questions are arising. We're wondering if there is an ideal committee size, a certain process we need to use to comply with IRS guidelines, and whether we can give our scholarship recipients a monthly stipend. Are there any legalities, guidelines, or best practices we need to be aware of? I like that question. I think I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna There's answer the several questions in that <laughs> one question. <laughs> yeah, I like that set of questions. So I think I'm gonna answer the um, the legalities and IRS guidelines part, and then I'm let you do the rest of them. Oh, okay, because okay. because I think you have better you got a better answer for those. So as far as the IRS goes, as long as you're set up as a public charity, 
So remember, 501c3s can be a several different kinds. You can be a chamber of commerce, you can be education, you can be lobbying, you can be a private foundation. As long as you're a public charity, and you'll be able to know that by looking at your 990 or asking somebody that knows, you have pretty much can do whatever you want when it comes to scholarships. So where the restrictions lie is if you're a private foundation, like if you're a corporate foundation or something like that, and you want to give scholarships to the children of employees or people that work for you, you just have to have a something in place that proves that it's not just you're trying to get away with not paying payroll taxes. Because that's what the IRS is really concerned about is that if you're pretending it's compensation and using it as an alternative form of compensation. And of course, the reason that rule exists is because someone cheated and tried it. So as long as you're not trying to pay somebody, as long as it's not going to the children of employees, you know, all the basic conflict of interest stuff, you're, you're pretty much in the clear on all the sort of IRS and government pieces. I will add to that because I have worked with organizations, public charities and the private foundations and the corporate foundations who've done scholarships. And many of them just to be on the really safe side, adhere to what are some very basic common best practices with scholarships, right? Making sure you have um, an objective and neutral process, making sure there isn't right any private benefit to someone on the committee mm -hmm. who is reviewing things, um, making sure that that sort of there's a large enough charitable beneficiary class, right? This isn't like a scholarship that's for somebody that's, it's like uniquely designed for someone based on the criteria, but there's enough people, right? So I, I'm a big believer that that should just be followed, um, you know, just from a best practice standpoint and doing it in the utmost kind of professional way. Uh, but I also think um, one of the questions was, right, how should we pay a stipend directly to the recipient? I mean, the short answer is you can do that. My recommendation, though, is that if you can pay it to a third party, if it's a third party scholarship, like or if it's a scholarship to a college, university, trade school, you should be able to make payment to that entity. Um, and the benefit of that is that that entity can sometimes verify some of the things you need, like GPA or like criteria, because that entity is set up to do it. They also can confirm enrollment. I have seen too many organizations where like a private scholarship is awarded directly to the individual, and then that individual disappears and they never hear back and they lose their money. So there's sort of an extra layer, I think, of protection of making sure the money gets to where it needs to go. Um, but that's also more you know, that can be more work for everybody. Yeah, you have to keep track of that if that's what you need to do, but you're going to have to keep track of it anyway. Yeah, I th it's a good point when when you're determining. I'm like, like one of the questions was like, how big should the committee be? Well, the, the, the committee should be as big as it needs to be to be able to do the work and to guarantee that it's not doing it the wrong way. Like, for example, what you don't want is a donor to give you money and for that money they gave you to end up as a scholarship for that person's child, because that's just nothing but avoiding taxes. And you're going to get in trouble. The donor's not going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. So like making sure that those policies are in place and that everybody understands what those pieces are. And, and, you know, to your point about making sure you understand what the, what the restrictions you're going to place on the student that you're giving things to, like, is it, is it, is it really for tuition? Is it for things outside? Because I, I agree with the tuition stuff. If you can make it 
something very specific where if you're giving it to an institution that's going to be able to pay the tuition and you can sort of assign it to that person's account to be used and then potentially either claw it back if they don't if they disappear or have that money redirected to a different student i think that sounds good as far as like stipends though i feel like i i see this i saw this a lot at the food bank too where a donor would decide to give us like supermarket gift cards because then we had to buy food with it and it, it felt very distrustful of the institution that mm. you're going to give, you know, make sure that you, I can give you a restriction, but I trust you. So I'm going to give you some sort of way that you can't actually do anything different than what I told you you were supposed to do. And I don't, I, you know, it, it doesn't feel like that's so, uh, I don't know if I were on the receiving end of that, I would much rather have someone say, and we're also going to give you a thousand dollars for room and board and that's up to you to make that decision on whether or not you're going to spend that money on what I gave it to you for and not try to restrict it in some sort of paternalistic way of, yeah. I know better than you do yeah. because you're poor and I'm a donor. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a balance there. Right. Um, and the other thing, and uh, you know, Andy, I don't know if you've heard of this, but I, I had done some research not too long ago related to another scholarship issue in, in my world. And one of the things that also pointed out that let's say you've got a donor that literally funds your scholarship program for your organization and also serves on the committee. There is actually a lot of um, sort of rules out there. And I don't know, you know, from what I could tell, it sounded like it applied to even public charities. But from what you're saying, this may not be the case. But but it actually was saying that donor still needs to be one an equal voice in that scholarship process. Like that donor can't have any more say because he or she is the one who funded this scholarship program, right? They get the equal vote with, if there's five other committee members, with the other five members. It's not those committee members all make the decision and then recommend to the donor and the donor gets the final say. Like, you've got to be really, I think, careful with that kind of dynamic and, you know, it, and just giving too much power and authority because then, you know, it's like the donor's own scholarship fund. I, it just negates the whole purpose of it. It does. And you're, the point you're making is really good because when you're giving the money to the nonprofit, you're you're losing control of it 100%. You don't yeah. get to have right. extra strings unless it's part of the original gift agreement. And you would never you would never accept a gift where the donor says, I'm going to give you this money, but you need to check with me every time that you're going to spend some of it so that I can make sure that you're exactly. spending it appropriately. There's Sometimes I've seen language that's similar to that in like big capital campaign donations where a a donor will come in and say, we're going to give you $7 million to build a building, but we want to look at all of the invoices before you pay them for all of your, who you're spending the money on. It's not like they necessarily are going to say, oh no, those chairs are too expensive or I don't like the color of that carpet, although they may, you never know. But it's really about just sort of making sure that they have a good feeling about that donation that they made because it's such a large amount of money. But really, once they give the donation, they give you a gift agreement and the gift agreement says this is money for a scholarship. I don't get any more say than anybody else. And it's almost kind of giving them a little extra bonus by saying, as the donor, we're going to let you participate in the committee. But here are the rules and we have to follow the rules and you don't get to just decide. That's not then you're avoiding gift tax, which the IRS isn't happy about that either. No. And I think your point is well taken about, you know, I agree with the scholarship committee size needs to be as large as it needs to be to get the job done and to do it well. And, you know, with all of the, the you know, 
points that we've already brought up. But I also think, I mean, I've seen scholarship committees where they're so large and it like, it, it really slows down the process. So, I mean, yep. just from practical experience, my sense is if you could keep it under, I don't know, five to seven, five, I, I don't know. Anyways, I just think much larger and it gets really unruly because everyone's got an opinion and, you know, a state, I don't know, a fight in the game. It's, it's pretty intense. Scholarship selection processes can be really intense. So prep yourself for that. So the Olympics are on, and I have been watching them. How about you, Andy? I have, I have. I, I'm I, when I was a kid, like my, I used to think the Olympics were the coolest thing in the world, and my kids do not care. Oh, like the Olympics are all like, well, the Olympics are on, and they're like, yeah, bye. Oh, they want to go do other stuff. That's I'm like, a yeah, but it's the Olympics. Yeah, it only happens once it's every. It's huge. They don't care. It's it's crazy. Anyways, I've been thinking a lot about the Olympics, and when they make it to that final finish line of whatever it is they're doing. And that's what you just did. You made it to the finish line of this podcast. So I don't have a gold medal to give you, but know that, you know, we're sending our our love and appreciation for you listening. And uh, yeah, as always, we appreciate you as our listeners. We appreciate Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits for making this possible. And also just your questions. Please keep the questions rolling. You know, you can send us a voicemail, um, 702-900-4656. If uh, you want to go old school, or you can just, you know, tag one of us on social media, find us via text, email, whatever. Mm -hmm. 